with me to Hebrews 9 as we continue our study. Christ is always the message and the messenger. The person he used to speak through the Apostle Paul is the only person in the Bible who brings Genesis to Revelation to theological understanding. Um, So we continue our study in Hebrews. The title of the message today is A Clear Conscience. What price would you pay for that, to have a clear conscience? To have everything in your past, everything in your present, everything in the future clearly filed away under Christ so that the things that weigh us down, they weigh us down in our mind. It's been said that if you think about the past, you're discouraged. If you think about the future, you're anxious. God's desire is that we think about now. And he will cleanse our consciences in order to do that. And only Christ and only his blood can cleanse a conscience So we know that he has dealt with our sin. Paul is going to explain, and we'll use others to explain, how your conscience can be cleansed, how guilt can be taken away, how God accomplishes that through the cross and through the word of God. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we want the clear conscience that Paul is going to describe to us today. We know that there aren't options to receive it, and we know that we cannot be effective without it. So help us to understand your plan that includes our consciences being cleansed. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Hebrews chapter 9, we begin reading the opening verses. Now the first covenant, we've been talking about these two covenants extensively, The first covenant being the law given to Moses and the second being the Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 covenant, which we read at the end of chapter 8. Now the first covenant, meaning the law, had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Talked about that last week. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained, this is what was inside the Ark in the tabernacle, the golden jar of manna representing the bread of life, Aaron's tablets of the covenant, or excuse me, Aaron's staff, um, and that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. These things were carried around inside the ark. Verse 5, above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So we won't go into detail on these things, but when you enter into the most holy place, you enter into the sanctuary where Jesus, pre-incarnate form, sat on a throne, and his throne was the Ark of the Covenant. So if you see an actual descriptive picture of the throne, you see these cherubim and their wings forming a seat 
on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is believed to be in Ethiopia today in mint condition and will likely be his throne seat when he returns to earth. So we have in this inner room a sanctuary where you could only go, and we'll look at that this in, if you could read all about it in Exodus chapter, or excuse me, yeah, Exodus chapter 16, Leviticus 16. You go into this room, the Ten Commandments or the law are inside of it. We have Aaron's staff where the miracles came through in Egypt, and we have above it cherubim who are literally in the throne. We, we looked last week that what Moses made had to be an exact replica of what is in heaven. So if we went to Isaiah chapter 6, we would see this exact scene when Isaiah is given a vision of heaven and we have Jesus seated on this atonement cover as his throne and we have cherubim flying over Jesus, shouting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Moses had to make a replica that is exactly like that. And everything that they did was picturing what would come in the future. And we will talk about that as we move forward. And we see in verse 9, as we read on, verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. So where the, the table and um, those things were outside the inner sanctuary, they would go in there regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit, so here's what the Holy Spirit is doing. For every listening ear, for every open heart, the Holy Spirit is, is causing people to see what is literally there and what is anticipated in the future. So the rituals were all pointing to two things. Number one, these rituals cannot accomplish what the cross can. And number two, they're all pointing to the cross. So verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way to the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So all of that, verses 8 through 10 there, the Holy Spirit was explaining through Moses, explaining through the law, explaining through the tabernacle that there is the holy place where they would regularly go in and do their ministries, but only once a year could you go behind the curtain where Jesus literally resided in what was recognizable to them as Shekinah glory over the Ark of the Covenant. 
So if you went to Leviticus 16, you would see this entire chapter devoted to that one day a year. And there were many things that would happen. They would offer visible sacrifices of bull and goat, and you could see those sacrifices. He couldn't go in to the most holy place till first he took a bath, and then he put on the consecrated clothes, and then he took the blood from the offering, and then he went in there, and only once a year. And he would actually approach the tabernacle with two goats, and one of the goats would be part of the blood offering that everyone would see. And the other goat, when he says here, Paul says that the Holy Spirit was showing that the way into the inner curtain had not yet been realized. That was the second goat. So the second goat is a picture of Christ to every Israelite on Yom Kippur. And this goat is called the scapegoat. So when you hear that term in society today, it's coming from Leviticus chapter 16. So what would happen is he would take the blood from the first goat and the bull and he would go into the inner sanctuary and he would offer sacrifices for the Holy of Holies. He would offer sacrifices for Israel and sacrifices for himself, come back outside and offer sacrifices that were then visible. When that was done, he would take the second goat and he would bring it forward and he would put his hands on that goat, a picture of transferring every sin of every Israelite on this goat. And then they would take that goat and send it off into the wilderness, which is a picture that one day that person, Jesus Christ, would be the Lamb of God that would be the scapegoat that would take care of consciences. So outwardly, the ceremonies performed by the priest on a regular basis and on Yom Kippur would make them cleansed outwardly. The scapegoat showed them that the way to be cleansed inwardly had not yet come. So it anticipates Christ and they would perform these ceremonies and everyone who was open to God understood exactly what was happening. And they understood that the one enthroned over the Ark of the Covenant, which could not be approached but once a year by the high priest, perfectly by design and with blood, so even the, the, the things that made them um, ceremonially clean on the outside all had to be blood. It is the only way for the removing of sin. But even with that, the way of cleansing the conscience had not yet come. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 and verse 15, where Paul is writing a letter to the Romans, but chapters 2, chapters 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 are about the Israelites. So it is a letter to Gentiles, but chapter 2 is about Jews, and he is speaking to Jews in Romans chapter 2, and he talks in verse 4 about um, the kindness and the forbearance of God and the patience of God bringing repentance. So, so the true way into the ultimate sanctuary is repentance, he explains to the Jews. Then you drop down in verse 15, they show, the Gentiles show, 
that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. So Paul is explaining to Jews post-resurrection about two decades later, a little more than two decades later, that the Gentiles who have given their life to Christ, they've put their faith in him, and now the Jeremiah covenant is written on their hearts and it is written on their minds. And this covenant and the word of God would sometimes accuse them and sometimes it would exalt them, it would set them free. So he's explaining that to the Jews. There's some verses in First and Second Timothy, but I want you to turn to First Peter as he is understanding this. Most of Paul's letters, in fact, all of his doctrinal epistles to churches have been written before First Peter. Paul has an influence on Peter, and Peter explains to us clearly what Paul is talking about in Hebrews and in many places in Romans and in First and Second Timothy. First Timothy is being written in the same year that Peter is writing First Peter. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, we begin with a verse that we are very familiar with, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So he, he uses Paul's gospel, what the Bible calls Paul's gospel. Paul says you must confess that he is Lord. So when we refer to Christ, we refer to him as Lord. When we revere him, we revere him as Lord. So Jesus, Savior, that's what he is. Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one. We revere him as Lord. So when we go out with our testimony, we go out in obedience to our Lord. So that's the first statement. Um, reading on, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect. And notice there's a comma after respect, not a period. So this sentence is, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So Peter is explaining, you go out always conscious of I'm representing my Lord. You bring a message that explains, and Paul is going to talk a lot about religion, a lot of what Paul is going to debunk in Hebrews chapter 9 happens in Mendota every Sunday, every Saturday. So he's going to explain that to us, and Peter says when you go out, always be ready to give an answer. As it was said in church builders, Recently, someone made the point that um, that's going to, for our sake, for our mission field, going to include people that go to church every Sunday, that have no idea that sacrifices are finished and that hope can be had now. The promises of God can all be realized now. So Peter says, revere Christ as Lord, Always be ready to give an answer. Sometimes we're walking to someone to give an answer and we walk right by the person who actually needs the answer. 
Sometimes we're, we're walking with someone who, who is religious and, and we're thinking about people who look like they don't have Christ and the person is standing right next to us. So Peter says, always be ready. And then he says, do it with gentleness and respect with a clear conscience. See, what clears a conscience is the word of God believed. So Peter is saying, revere Christ as Lord, give them the gospel, have a clear conscience of what you're giving and what you know. It is only truth that God uses to cleanse our conscience. Our flesh will always be willing to go back. Remember what you did? Remember what happened? When we forgive God, or when God forgives us, when we repent to God for our sins as a believer, with a clear conscience, it's been removed. It's gone. God doesn't see it anymore. Could he? Yes. Will he? Never. So the cleansing of our conscience is knowing that we, what we present to people is true. So he's explaining that. Peter is, as he says in verse 16, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And he continues to explain this once for all sacrifice. For Christ also suffered once for sins. There are so many references to um, sacraments and confirmations and confessions and all of these things. Peter and Paul are going to make crystal clear there is one sacrifice. Everything the Jews did anticipated it. Everything we do looks back to it and it's finished. And that cleanses our conscience in knowing that. We're not going to do penance. We're not going to do receive punishment. We're not going to do good in order to be cleansed. We have been cleansed. Verse 18, For, for Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Suffered once for sins. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, and Noah was preaching the gospel to all of them, but Christ himself came as a witness to their rejection. While the ark was being built, in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt, we read this last week, but the, uh, from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we put all of this together and the bookend starts with revere Christ as Lord and it concludes with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and it is 
um, consummated by a clear conscience that I know whom I believe, that I'm convinced that he is able. His word says that if I revere him as Lord and I rely on his resurrection for my sins, that my sins are gone. They're not in the picture. They will never come up on God's screen again. So we're human and we're fleshly and and I can easily recall sins that I've repented for and they still make me sick to my stomach. It is out of line for me to go back and repent again for those sins. That will never cleanse my conscience. What cleanses my conscience is now those sins don't seem so bad. No. What cleanses my conscience is the truth of the gospel. So always be ready to give people an answer includes you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm not going to open up to you every sin that I've committed. We would both be ashamed of me. But the gospel says that the Lamb of God comes to take away the sin of the world, not to make it less offensive, not to make me feel better about what I've done, but to remove it. Conscience cleansed. So if I truly believe what God says about sin, my conscience becomes clear. My guilt is removed. If my guilt isn't removed and my conscience isn't clear, then I don't believe what he says. So it is belief in the truth that sets us free. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 9. The more of the truth that you know allows you to follow more truth. And Paul will explain in the chapters to come, and John explains in 1 John, that that actually sets you free. So we will be reading in John chapter 8 later where Jesus talks about that himself. Verse 11, Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, as it's described in Leviticus 16, but he entered the most holy place once for all. We've read that, those three beautiful words, multiple times. Once for all. There was never going to be a sacrifice that could accomplish the removal of sin. There doesn't ever have to be and can't be again a sacrifice that will remove sins. There is one sacrifice, as Peter just explained, And as Paul is explaining here, once for all, by his own blood, thus attaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit 
offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So let's read the comparison, verse 9. This is an illustration. This is what the Holy Spirit was explaining for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Do you see in that verse why our consciences have to be cleansed? If you still feel guilty for your sin, you will operate in that mindset. Oh God, please forgive me. That I, want to, I want you to forgive me again. Please, God, forgive me. I, it, I recalled it again. God, please forgive me. I, I'm going to go to church faithfully. Please forgive me, God. In that realm, I'm not serving God. I'm serving me. I'm saying, God, make me feel better. God, help me to forget. When God is saying, I've already done that. I've already taken it away. And the purpose of all of this is the end of verse 14. So that we may serve the living God. That's why he cleanses our conscience. That's why he takes our guilt away. So Isaiah, when when God calls him, is seeing Jesus on his throne in all of his glory and the the seraphim that that Paul describes here in Hebrews chapter 9 that are above the the atonement ark which Jesus is residing on. Isaiah is allowed to see this and these seraphim are flying over Jesus um, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, Isaiah says, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke just like it was in the tabernacle. And Isaiah's thought is, woe to me, I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then he says, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and he said, see this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Then Jesus speaks from his throne. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. That's our picture. Isaiah didn't lose memory of all the things he had done. He didn't forget about all the sins he committed. He believed God told him the truth. So that picture is relived in John chapter 12 by Jesus himself so that when we revere him as Lord, 
It's as though he takes a coal, a burning coal from his altar, touches us, and not only wipes our sins out, he takes our guilt away. Our flesh and our mind says, I still feel guilty. But we do not operate as the world operates. We take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ, conscience cleansed. Jim, is your conscience cleansed? Yes. So you never feel guilty? That's a different question. Does your guilt remain? No. Why? Because he says it doesn't. Because he says he cleared my conscience. Because he says, I will forgive their sins and I will remember them no more. The fact that I know that God doesn't remember my sins cleanses my conscience. So now when I revere Christ as Lord and I share the message, I'm not sharing Jim McDowell. I'm not sharing what Jim McDowell has done. I am sharing what God has done for Jim McDowell. That's the hope that I have that the terrible things that you could pile up and we would all agree, Jim should never go to heaven. It's been taken away. It has been removed so that as Isaiah experienced, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for, it's gone. If you believe that, your conscience is cleansed. Going back to Hebrews 9, actually let's go to, um, in your notes there, the, the purpose then of all of this is that we may serve the living God. 2 Corinthians 5.15, he, he died that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Um, and he died for us for that purpose, knowing that we can say, Jesus, this is for you. Jesus, I'm doing this for you. Boy, I sure hope he forgives me. Boy, I, I sure hope, Lord, please forgive me again. In that mindset, it's not really for him. A person told me one time, I, I, I said, do you believe that he's forgiven all of your sins? And he said, yes. I said, do you believe that you can lose your salvation? And he said, yes. And I said, for what reasons? For sin. And I said, well, do you sin? And he said, well, yes. And I said, do you lose your salvation? And he said, I don't think so. And, and I said, would you lose your salvation for not going to church? And he said, well, absolutely. I said, have you ever missed church? And he said, well, not very often. And I said to him, where is this list? We live in a community where most people in this community are familiar with the term mortal sin. You know what mortal sin is? Every sin before you make Christ as Lord and no sin afterwards. That's the definition of mortal sin according to the Bible. There is no venial sins in the Bible either. They are all sins. They are all mortal sins. Every sin before I come to Christ as Lord is a mortal sin. The wages of sin is death. 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have to believe that's true in order for our conscience to be clear. Well, I don't feel like I deserve it. You never will. You never should. I don't feel like I've done enough good. You never will. You never can. I don't feel like he's forgiven me. That's a problem. The only way you can forgive others is to receive it yourself. The only way you can have a clear conscience is to know that you have. None of us deserve it. But like Isaiah, we rejoice knowing. So in John chapter 12, Jesus is pointing to the cross. He's just a few days from it, and he is pouring theology through John to us a lot of which John didn't understand at the time, but he clearly understands it by the time he writes. In John chapter 12 and verse 23, we're just going to look at it a little bit. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So Jesus is explaining this revering Christ as Lord that he's about to go to the cross, that he's about to accomplish everything. In this same chapter, about verse 41, he's going to take us back to Isaiah chapter 6 and apply it to us. Turn to John chapter 8, as long as we're close. So if you asked, who will set you free? The answer is only Jesus all the time. If you're talking about your conscience, and I asked, what will set you free? What's the answer? Truth. It is God's purpose that the only sword of the Spirit is truth, and that it's truth itself that sets you free. It is hearing, acknowledging, knowing, and obeying truth that sets us free. So he's in John chapter 8. He's talking to people who would like to kill him right here. And we pick up the text with familiar verses in verse 31. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, in other words, if you obey it, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We have churches that are full of people who feel just as stressed out as the world does because they hear the truth and they acknowledge that it's truth, but they don't live in the truth. They don't live with what God says is true. If you know the truth and you live the truth and you hold to my teaching, I will set you free. Our consciences are set into freedom by truth. But it has to be our truth. So he's speaking this to people who really don't want him to remain alive. Verse 33, 
they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. In other words, we don't need to be set free. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, with what, Jesus? The truth, verse 31 and verse 32, you will be free indeed. So whatever your conscience draws up from the past, whatever you remember about Romans 4, who you were, your answer is free. I'm free. I'm free because of what he has done for me and I live in his truth. Verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered, If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. Paul explains all of this in Romans 4. Verse 40, As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your father. We are not illegitimate children, the Greek word there I wouldn't even want to use, basically saying that Mary was less than pure and Joseph was naive and Jesus was, I won't say it. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. Satan's lie to a Christian is, slow down. What if people discover who you were? You better just coexist in the church. You better just chill because you know who you really are. God's truth to that person is, When the Son set you free, you are free indeed. So Mary Magdalene would have continued to hear whispers. Jesus' mother would have continued to hear whispers. And Mary would have said to them, free. Free. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4 as Paul is dealing with religion and explaining, and he uses 
Abraham's slave woman and Abraham's free woman. And it's interesting how he uses this picture, so don't be too... Don't be too bogged down in trying to figure out all the theology of the metaphor. The metaphor is very simple and very straightforward. Hagar is a picture of the Old Covenant. Sarah is the picture of the New Covenant. Um, so he's not, he's not taking us deep into theology with that. He's taking us deep into understanding of the two covenants. So we pick it up in verse 21 of Galatians 4. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? So Paul has brought the gospel to the Galatian churches. The Jews have come in behind him and say, okay, now be circumcised so you can go to heaven. Verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. So Abraham is a picture of Christ, and Isaac is a picture of the birth of Christ, and Mary is pregnant as a result of a divine promise in the Holy Spirit, and Isaac becomes conceived by a divine appointment from God. So what has happened is God doesn't make Sarah pre-menopausal, after she's post-menopausal, he just appoints a birth in her womb. God says, I declare that you will carry a son, that you will have a son, and that the promise will be kept. Verse 24, these things are to be taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. So these people are saying that they are children of Abraham, even though they're through Isaac, they're not really because it's faith that is through Abraham. Verse 26 but the children, but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who have never borne a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. That is from Isaiah 54. He is pre-picturing the Babylonian captivity and he's assigning that to this slavery and this barren woman and he's anticipating the millennium and the children born there um, will expand Abraham's inheritance. Verse 28. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time... The son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. 
chapter 5 and verse 1 is an important verse. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. All of the slavery to sin has been wiped out. Your, your conscience has been cleared. You can say to the, the question, why, Jesus? If I carry guilt, well, I, I hope he'll forgive me. I hope that he'll accept me. No, that has been accomplished. We are children of Sarah in this sense. We are free, and it is for freedom's sake that we are free. Because we cannot truly, end of verse Hebrews 9.14, serve him with an unclear conscience, with guilt remaining, with I still remember who I am. We have, to, we have to have as our truth his truth. Where are your sins that you've committed, Jim? They're gone. What about the stains on your conscience? Gone. How can that be? Because the one in whom I trust says so. And then he says, if I've set you free, you're free indeed. You're completely free. We could never, as a Christian, walk into a, a situation where we can say, um, I'm just, I still remember my sin. Um, I, I can't serve because of it. And then Paul warns us, stand firm then. That slavery that was sin, leave it behind. Stay away from it. Walk from it. So two things, forget, not I can't remember it anymore, but I choose to remember it no more, and then don't go back to it. Verse 2, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves become circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. So what these people are being told in particular is like today, people are saying, well, you better be baptized so you can go to heaven these were Jews telling them, you better be circumcised. And again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that you are obligated to obey the whole law. You're going to try to get to heaven by the law? Okay, obey it completely. By the way, you can't do it. Verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. This is that hope Peter's talking about. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 and verse 15. This is important to us. It was exceedingly important to Jews in the day that Paul wrote this. Verse 15, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. When do we realize it? Someday in the future. When do we receive it? Right now. 
now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Remember, he's a mediator because of that qualification, because of what he did. Verse 16, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. Turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 12. This covenant, this law that we are talking about, that Moses is bringing to the Israelites, you have in your notes there a verse Remember, we looked at David's repentance last week. Read Psalm 32. Read Psalm 51. David's misery ended when he repented. His memory still in place. His awareness of what he did. Scars because of the sins. Um, His family messed up. His conscience clear. And it has to be the way he writes Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. So, you have Psalm 51.7 there in your notes. David understands forward and backwards what this means. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So a hyssop plant was used as a brush to paint with in Moses' day and David's day. So David is remembering the blood on the doorpost in Egypt. And what we read here in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 21, then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of it shall go, no, none of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning, when the Lord Jesus Himself goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians. He will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the door frame, and will pass over the doorway, and He will not permit the destroyer to enter that house. Turn to Leviticus chapter 17. These are the things David is applying backwards to that moment and forward to Christ because he understands them both. So scientifically and from the Bible, the scientists have learned this in the last few centuries, what was written in the Bible is true physically and in every way that all of the life of a being is actually in the blood, that that you can take a sample of blood from someone and you can see all of the elements of life within that blood. It was actually written down 1,445 years before Christ in the Bible. Verse 10 of chapter 17, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood. That, That causes us to pause for a minute. The largest 
religion in the name of Christianity in the United States says that you have to eat blood. You have to. Here God says that I will cut off anyone who does that. Verse 11, for the life of the creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor any may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. Any Israelite or any foreigner residing among you who hunts any animal or bird that they may be, that may be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with earth, because the life of every creature is in its blood. That is why I have said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is in the blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. Turn back to Hebrews as we finish out this chapter. Hebrews 9 and verse, we'll pick it up in verse 19. When Moses proclaimed, had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet, wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. Everything in the tabernacle from the scroll to the, the utensils to the ark to the people. Um, there's, there's a ceremony where each person has blood put on them so that they understand the significance of the forgiveness that is related to blood. Verse 20, he said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So that the picture that they have that would cleanse them externally, remember the Pharisees were only interested in the external things. Much of religion and priesthoods today are they're concerned with external things. So what does Jesus call those people? He says, you are like whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside and you're full of dead men's bones on the inside. That's what Jesus says about religion. So the religion that says that you need to eat this and drink that and touch this and be confirmed and do all of these things, Jesus says all of those things were only ceremonial cleansings that never take away sin. So if you want to live by those, as we've already heard Paul say in Galatians, then go ahead, obey the whole law, and good luck, because you can't do it. So Paul is explaining that here, verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24, for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by human hands. That was a copy of the true one. 
he entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. So we need to be prepared to give an answer. Why do we have a cross? It reminds us of what he did. Why is it not a crucifix? Because a crucifix and those who believe in it believe that he offers himself as a sacrifice at every Mass. That's why he is hanging on the cross. The reality is that that Paul says, no, he died once. He paid for all sins. Every sin in both directions had to be accomplished at one sacrifice. And the priests that are telling you you need to touch this and eat this and do that and do this, they don't understand. None of that takes away sins. And the most difficult aspect of it is we ask the wrong questions about those people. We ask an earthly question that is, yeah, but can they still be saved? The heavenly question is, are they following my truth? Because the truth sets you free. And none of those rituals are found anywhere in his truth. And wherever you find scripture that speaks to those things, it always calls them abominations. Things that empty the cross. So our our opportunities aren't limited to atheists and Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses. Their witness, our opportunities are related to the largest religions in America. They have to know, first of all, that we love them. Jesus hates religion and he loves every religious person. They have to know that what God says is true. They probably won't argue that. Then they have to know that only what God says is true. They might not argue that. But if you go into the largest ceremony in Mendota this morning, you will notice that zero people will carry this book in with them. And this is the only book that has God's truth. So Paul is trying to explain to the Jews in their case, we have the law, we have Moses, John chapter 5, we have Abraham, John chapter 8, we have the law, we have the temple, we have everything. And Paul is saying, none of those things Remove your sin. Verse 25, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way of the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. He has appeared once for all. How many times have we seen those three words? The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. The debt is paid at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. The culmination, or in your notes there, the Greek word sonatilia, which is the, the, the culmination, the consummation. This is where terms like dispensations come from because in the dispensation that is the law, it is concluded with the fulfillment of the law. 
So the, the, the relationship that is eternal with a human being and with God was consummated at the cross. And it is made complete at the cross. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27. Last week in chapter 8, we saw how the tabernacle Moses made had to be exactly like the one in heaven. We're reading in chapter 9. That doesn't mean they're exactly the same. It just has to be with the same dimensions. So in real time, for us who live in time, what happens on earth in the tabernacle at the death of Jesus Christ happens simultaneously in heaven. So when we read about what happens on earth, we consider what's happening in heaven. So in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50, this is what is happening. Um, we can pick it up in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. So those instructions that we read in Exodus chapter 12 was that they were to kill the Passover lambs at three o'clock in the afternoon. Then they were to take some hyssop, dip it in the blood from the lambs, and put it on the doorpost. Well, what happens 1,445 years later at the exact time in the afternoon, on the exact day, the exact month, Jesus dies on the cross. So Exodus 12, 6 is what happens in Matthew 27, verse 45. At noon until three in the afternoon, darkness comes over the land. At about three and a half in the afternoon, this is twilight to a Jew. This is the 14th day of Nisan at twilight, which is when Passover was instituted. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, you have to read all of Psalm 22, which is probably what Jesus is doing from the cross. He's probably quoting Psalm 22, which begins with this dark moment for Jesus and ends with his coronation having defeated sin forever. So in verse 47... When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. All of these things are prophecy fulfillments from Psalms. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain... We go back to the scapegoat. The scapegoat was always, we don't really have access to this place. We really can't go in there. We can't be where the throne is. But what happens on earth is this enormous 60-foot curtain that's four inches thick rips against its seams and opens up. And the same thing is happening in the tabernacle in heaven in real time. So we read, um, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs 
after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and explained, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary and and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Turn back to Hebrews and stop off at chapter 6 briefly. Where Paul is given us the the theology of that curtain tearing in heaven, beginning in verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of this hope, 1 Peter 3.15, set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, It enters into the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Back to chapter 9, verse 26 again. Otherwise if this wasn't a once for all. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer, have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination or the consummation, the end of the age of the law, the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And for us, that is the rapture. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul has devoted, I believe, his largest chapter in the Bible to that promise, that resurrection, where he is completing the salvation of a Christ follower with a glorified body. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we pick it up in verse 42. So will it be at the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. That's why we are born again. And after that, the spiritual. John 3, 3 through 5. 
The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born in the image of the earthly man, Genesis 5, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. There's a verse explaining that Jesus never talked about the rapture right there. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. That's why at the culmination of that age, Christ paid full payment. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul challenges us. Therefore, my dear children, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in the Lord, is not in vain. Heavenly Father, help us to present to the world what freedom truly is by following your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.